Our sermon today is taken from Acts 2, verses 14 to 21. Here's the word of God. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thus says the Lord. Friends, we're continuing in our series, the book of Acts, and we are currently in chapter 2. Last week, we talked about verses 1 to 13, which is all about the Pentecost event, right? What's a Pentecost event? It's when the Holy Spirit, who is God's immediate presence, finally came. He was poured out by God to all of his people. And it's important for us to understand that the Pentecost event we studied last week it wasn't just some unplanned random event that suddenly happened. All right, it was an event that's been promised by God throughout the Old Testament that one day God will send his spirit to be with his people. And when that day comes, which it did in Acts chapter 2, the Old Testament says that'll be the mark of the beginning of this period of time or this era that's called the last days. And that's what the Bible that's where the Bible claims we are now. We're at the last days, because we live after the Pentecost event. And it's really, really important for us to know this. My, uh, my kids, they're at this age where they're starting to be able to tell time. Okay, they, they're, they're able to tell the concept of time. Now, they can't read the clock yet. They can't read time yet. Um, but they can figure out the time of day they're in by looking at the signs around them. So, for example, you know, they look at the sun and it's gone. It's not there anymore or they look at, you know, they feel how hot it is around them and it's not that hot. So Liam would sense that and he would ask me, Daddy, is it morning time? You know, before the sun come out. And sometimes he's wrong. Sometimes it's the afternoon because morning and afternoon could kind of feel the same to him, you know? But he's trying to figure out, am I in the morning or am I in the afternoon time? Because when he is will determine his expectations and it also inform him how he's meant to live his life, okay, right? Am I expecting breakfast and then 15 minutes of cartoon in the morning? Or am I expecting dinner, shower, and then bed because it's in the afternoon? When am I? In order for him to arrange his expectations well, and in order for him to live his life well, he needs to know not just where he is, but when he is. And I think a lot of Christians don't really understand when they're at. And because of that, there's a lot of unmet expectations, right? We expect breakfast when we should be having a shower ready for bed. 
or we expect sleep when we instead should be working. If you want to know how to live life well, you've got to know when you're at. And that's what our passage is all about today. Acts chapter 2, verse 14 to 21. It's all about Peter. It's Peter's sermon that he's preaching right after the Pentecost event that we studied last week, where he's trying to clarify to God's people when they're at. Right? The Holy Spirit has come. Okay? And that marks uh, that we're living in the last days. That's when we're at. And therefore, this is what you should expect. And therefore, this is how you should live. All right? And in his attempt to do that, what Peter does is he quotes an Old Testament prophet named Joel, who also talks about the last days. And we see here at least three things from Joel, as quoted by Peter, about the last days. First, what God gives us during it. Second, how we should live in it. And third, our only hope of getting through it. All right? What God gives us, how we should live, and our only hope. First, what God gives us during these last days. Look at verse 16. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, Peter says. And then he goes on to quote Joel chapter 2. That in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Okay, so before we continue, my sense is that we need to clarify what the last days mean. Like, what does Joel mean? Uh, and the Old Testament authors mean when they say the phrase last days, because I think it's a very misunderstood phrase. The image here isn't someone on the streets shouting, you know, the apocalypse will come, right? Uh, December 11th, 2025, that is the, the last day. That's not what the Old Testament authors mean when they say the phrase the last day. When the Bible says the phrase the last days, that's referring to a specific period of time between when Jesus first came to earth to when he'll come again the second time to redeem all things. Okay, those are the last days. Why? Because if you break down world history through biblical lenses, that's the last big chunk we have in history. Okay, let's think about the big chunks in the Bible. First is creation, Genesis 1 to 2. And then there's a fall in Genesis 3, where we sinned and everything broke. And then there's Genesis 4, you know, let's say to Malachi, that's the Old Testament period before Jesus came. And then there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's when Jesus came and died for our sins. And then there's Acts to Revelation, which is the period after Jesus came, awaiting for the time when he'll come again, the Bible promises. And then, that's it. <laughs> that's the last chunk, that's the last period of time. And that's where we're living at. And, and the Bible, Peter here and Joel is trying to tell us um, that we are living in the last part of the story. We are in the last few chapters of the book. We are in the last days. So what should we expect here? Okay, well, first you should expect a huge benefit, okay? For God's people who live in the last day, Joel, days, Joel says, look at verse 17, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Okay, we have God's spirit poured out upon us and the image here is a torrential outburst, like, like a rainstorm of the spirit on God's people. And it's really, we don't really understand how big of a deal that is, how big of a privilege, a benefit that is, because we're not Jewish and we're, most of us are unfamiliar with the Old Testament. Because this hasn't always been the case. Throughout the Old Testament, before Acts chapter 2, before Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit was only available to a very select few people, like some really special high priest 
right, or, or a prophet. So for Joel to say that in the last days, the Holy Spirit will come upon all flesh, not just high priests or prophets, that was an unbelievable privilege, but it was also very dangerous. At the risk of using an overused movie analogy, the Avengers, okay, think about the Infinity Stones. If you don't know the movie, the Infinity Stones are these rocks or entities that are really powerful, packs a lot of power in it, but not everyone can touch it or use it, right? You have to be strong enough to touch it or use it or else you'll perish when you come in contact with it. Analogies fall apart at some point, all right? So before you send those emails, I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit is an infinity stone, okay? What I'm saying is that the Holy Spirit is powerful. He's powerful. And when he comes upon you, that's a privilege. There's power to that, but he's also very dangerous, okay? Even some high priest in the Old Testament would die when they come in contact with the Holy Spirit. He's, he's dangerous. So Peter here is quoting Joel, verse 17, and he's saying that in the last days that we're currently in, all flesh, not just Jewish high priests, sons and daughters, young and old men, male and female servants, there'll be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and whoever God sends a spirit to, they'll be able to handle it. That's, that's a big deal, that there's no discrimination between race, all flesh, between gender, sons and daughters, between age, young and old, and between financial status, male and female servants. The spirit will be available to all. That's bizarre. Now, can I just say, um, I had a conversation with my wife recently about how different Christians, depending on what culture they come from, have different triggers, trigger words, okay? What I mean is that depending on your different culture and Christian upbringing, there are certain Christian churchy phrases or words that can kind of cause you to feel icky when you hear it, okay? And that's usually because that biblical phrase was used in the past towards you in a harmful way. Like, for example, some of you get triggered when you hear the word evangelism or discipleship, right? You, you hear that and you cringe. You kind of go, oh, you know who you are. And it's not that you hate discipleship or evangelism. It's just because in the past, pastors and Christian leaders in your life have used those phrases to kind of manipulate you, for example, to, to build, bring more people to church and kind of glorify their own kingdoms, right? And you feel used and abused and you associate that phrase um, with a negative connotation. I assume, maybe, perhaps, that the phrase, being filled with the Spirit, or having the Spirit come upon you, those are trigger words for a lot of Christians that live in our culture in Indonesia. Some of you hear that phrase, be filled with the spirit and you feel gleek sedikit. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you feel cringy and you don't quite know why. Well, maybe because in the past that phrase has been used in a manipulative way toward you. Pastors would say, you know, pray that the Holy Spirit would fill you more, but really it's just to motivate you and guilt you to do more for church as if you're not being filled with the Spirit. That's why you're not giving more money to church or something. You know, so for like, you know, five, eight, ten years, I don't know, you grew up in church hearing that phrase, being filled with the Spirit, as this pressure-filled phrase that brings anxiety, you know? It's just thrown around by people who just want you to do more for their church or as an escape phrase to avoid any difficult questions that you may have about Christianity. You know, they would say, stop asking those questions just be filled with the Spirit, you know. And now we hear that phrase, and, and you feel a bit icky. 
And if you're feeling like that right now, let's move on to our second point. Hopefully, we'll get a clearer picture of what it actually means to be filled with the Spirit. And I think that the picture we see here in Joel and in, in Peter's words is different than what perhaps has been presented to you in the past. All right, let's move on to our second point, how we should live in the last days. All right, look at verses 17 to 18. What will happen to these people? How will they live their lives when they're, lived, when they're filled with the Holy Spirit? And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. There it is. They'll prophesy, see visions, and dreams, and here we go again, you're thinking to yourself. You feel triggered, you know, because these phrases, again, dreams, visions, prophecy, they've been used with you in the past in, in, in a wrong way. You know, somebody would come to you and say, I have prophecy from the Lord that you will marry Stephanie. <laughs> the Lord told me that during dinner last night, or I had a dream last night from the Lord, and he told me that you need to be a lawyer, not a fisherman, not a doctor, a lawyer. And, and these things have been used in the past to kind of manipulate you to making decisions, uh, maybe not for your benefit, but for their own gain. And, and you hear that right now and you're like, oh my gosh, here we go again. But that's not at all the picture here when Joel and the Old Testament prophets say prophecy, visions, and dreams. They're not talking about um, uh, these personal answers to your future. Uh, that these prophecies and visions will give you. No, in the Old Testament, prophecies and visions and dreams are always things that God gave to people for them to point to the cross. That's what it is. Not about figuring out who you're going to marry. Think about Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant, the one who's going to come and through his wounds we will be healed. Our sins will be placed upon him. Who's that prophecy about? That's a prophecy. It's about Christ. Think about Ezekiel's, I mean, uh, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah's prophecy that one day through the line of David will, will come the righteous, the true king of Israel. David's not the true king. There's another king that's going to come. Who is that pointing to? Jesus, the son of David, the true king of Israel. Visions, same thing. You know, think about Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw, had a vision of God, um, touching his sinful lips with burning coal that purified his sin. Who's that about? It's about Jesus, about the cross. Think about Ezekiel's vision when Israel was captured by Babylon and all the Israelites were taken out of uh, Israel to Babylon. Jeremiah was one of them. And he saw the, a vision of God's temple coming out of uh, Israel, Jerusalem, to follow them to Babylon. What's that about? That's about God telling Ezekiel that he's the kind of God who will pursue his people into exile, which is about the cross. <laughs> dreams, same thing. Think about Jacob's dream, Jacob's ladder in Genesis chapter 28. You know, he dreamt a ladder that connected heaven to earth. What's that about? Don't let anybody tell you that's about a way Jacob can get to heaven, we can get to heaven. Oh no, that's about God climbing down to us which is again pointing to the cross. That's all dreams and, and prophecies and visions are meant to describe in the Old Testament. Okay, it's never been about 
personal advancements of your individual life. It's never been about what job you're supposed to take or who you're supposed to marry. It's always been about God directly interfering with someone's life and causing them to foreshadow something about the gospel that is to come. So now in the last days, Joel says, similar to the Old Testament, God will through his spirit again interfere in people's lives and cause them to point to the cross. But now instead of God doing it just to a select few people, he's gonna do it to all people from all races and all ages, no matter how much money they have. And unlike the Old Testament, these people aren't gonna foreshadow the cross event that's gonna happen. They're gonna point backwards to the cross event that has already happened. And that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That's what it means to have your life be disrupted by the Spirit. Not that you're gonna have a vision about who to marry or have a dream about which house to buy. It means you're gonna have a deep, longing and burning desire to point people to the cross. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to find yourself sharing the gospel, screaming out, you know, Jesus in, in some street corner somewhere. You may be at a point where you're just beginning to learn how to share the gospel with people. You may even be further back than that. You're figuring out internally why is it that this idea of sharing the gospel with other people feels so heavy and, and weird and hard for you to do, and you're trying to figure out internally why that is. I don't know where you're at, but it doesn't matter where in the journey you're at. If you, in, deep inside, desire for people to hear about the cross and about the gospel, and you're, you're, you're working toward that, wherever you are in the journey, that's not a desire you built up in your lonesome. That's God's spirit interfering with your life calling you into a bigger purpose. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That's the first thing of what it means to be filled with the Spirit and how we are called to live as Christians in these last days, to point people to the cross. The second thing we see in this passage is what it means to be filled with the Spirit is that you're going to also start to love people indiscriminately, inclusively. Okay, look at verse 17 to 18. When God spoke about your sons and, sons and daughters, old and young men, notice he used the pronoun your. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. But, and this is easy to miss, when God talks about male and female servants, who at the time would have been at the bottom of the totem pole, you know, who would have been the most outcast in society, notice when God talked about them, he switched the pronouns. And he said, my male and female servants, your sons and daughters, your young men, your old men, my male and female servants. Why do you think God switched up the pronouns here? To emphasize that those whom society oppresses most has a special place in his heart. That those who are considered as outcast, he welcomes with open, arms. And that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. <laughs> you're going to want to point people to the cross, to the good news of Christ, and you're going to love people indiscriminately. You're going to have a special place in your heart for those who are forgotten. Are you filled with the Spirit? Has your life been disrupted by the Spirit? It needs to be. we got to live like this in these last days. We have to. Why? Because, as God will continue to explain here in our passage, 
there's also going to be a lot of darkness in these last days. And we Christians are called to live like this and be a brighter light ever than before, which leads us to our last point, our only hope through the last days. Okay, let's continue in verses 19 to 20. This is what God said will happen in the last days. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. What in the world? <laughs> Again, trippy stuff. What is this all about? Well, almost all biblical scholars that I read on and listened to about this topic, they all agree uh, that these are judgment signs. Okay, in the Old Testament, these are all judgment signs of God's wrath, of God's judgment for sin. That's agreed upon. But what they had a hard time agreeing on is whether these judgment signs would actually be like noticeable events. You know, for example, blood here means there's gonna be like World War III or something. And then moon to blood here actually means that one day the moon will turn into like this blood-like red color. You know, is it that? Are these actual judgment signs that will very obviously happen and come in these last days? Or is God trying to say here that these are events that are already happening, that's already been ongoing, but we just gotta start viewing them with judgment lenses on. So for example, wars, blood, right? That's already something that's been going on forever. And it's gonna to continue to happen, perhaps increasingly more, I don't know. Either way, the point is we gotta start viewing that as God's judgment upon our sin, that he's letting us do this. And the blood, you know, the moon to blood, that's uh, just a solar eclipse, which actually happens quite often, about once a year, where there's a solar eclipse and the moon looks red because of the way the light uh, fragments reflect uh, when the moon passes the shadow of the earth with the sun. And we just have to start seeing them as that, that kind of natural event stuff as judgment signs. You know, is God saying here that judgment signs will more obviously happen? Or is God saying here that we need to start viewing things that are already happening with judgment lenses on? And people can disagree with this. You can disagree with, with my take on this, but I do lean more toward the second explanation I think God here is saying through Joel and Peter is this, look around, look around you, look at the ongoing natural events around you, uncontrollable pandemic outbreaks <laughs> that's taken millions of lives, forest fires, earthquakes, tsunamis, you know, turn the TV on and watch a channel about nature Yes, you'll see a lot of goodness and beauty and tranquility and peace in nature. But also, if you stay on that channel long enough, you're also probably going to see a poisonous spider biting a baby giraffe or something, you know, and it's dying. Or like a snake that bites a guy who lives in a village and they're dying. If you pay enough attention to the wholeness of nature long enough, what are you going to feel? You know, oh, nature, so peaceful, so safe. No, you're not. What you're gonna feel is this. Oh man, you know what? It's not that safe here. <laughs> Nature oftentimes is against me. It's, it's dangerous. All it takes in this world is for one random virus to hit one random guy in one random town and the whole world collapses. It's not safe here. Nature isn't for me, it's against me. There's something that's not right about this world. Things are not the way they should be. 
And why aren't things the way they should be? Well, the Bible gives us an explanation. You take it all the way back to Genesis 3, when everything broke. Why did everything break? Because we sinned. We replaced the glory of God with something else, and that broke everything. It wasn't always like this, and it won't always be like this. One day, Revelation says that the lion will lay with the lamb. One day, the book of Revelation says that the water of the sea will be so still, it's going to be like glass. But for now, look around. Look around and remember the consequences of our sin. It's like somebody committed a horrible crime and they get thrown into prison and they look around and they see dry gray walls and they see the terrible food and they see the uncomfortable bed and they see the dangerous environment and they're constantly reminded of the crime they committed, of the consequences of their immorality and of the inescapable reality of justice. That's what nature is meant to remind us of. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, mankind has looked around and all they see is that things aren't the way they should be. And we want out. We want out. Everybody wants out. And, and, and don't fool yourself to thinking that you don't want out, you know? Oh, my life's fine here. I've never wanted out. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. If you've ever in your life said the phrase, Things aren't the way they should be, which I'm pretty sure everybody said before, or at least thought a few times. That means you want out. Why? Because if you say things aren't the way they should be, that means deep inside of you, you have a sense of longing of how things should be. Which means you want to get from here to here, which means you want out. Everybody has a sense deep inside them that this isn't how things should be, and we want out. The question isn't whether or not you want out. The question is, how have you gone about doing that? What's been your escape plan? Now, let me share with you two of the most popular escape, escape plans that we've ever come up with, all right, in the past. First escape plan is called materialism. Materialism says that all that exists in all of reality are just the material things that we can see and touch and smell and observe with our senses. So like love, for example, they wouldn't say love is an actual real thing. That's just our brain chemicals producing certain things, certain ways to make us feel a certain feeling. But love itself is not a real entity. Or good and evil aren't real concepts, right? You just, there's a kind of categories we made up. God isn't real because we can't see him or touch him. Now, that, that's one escape route, right? Believing in materialism can rid the evil around you. That's one way out. How? Because evil, based on the materialistic worldview, isn't a real thing. It's just something we made up. Okay, so when a girl loses her parents to COVID, you know, materialists would say, that's not evil or bad, it just is. People die from viral outbreaks all the time. What's the big deal? Death isn't a bad or a good thing. It just is, you know? Suffering just is. Death just is. That's one way to escape evil, to pretend like it's not there. Another popular escape route is called legalism. Unlike materialism, legalism believes that God does exist, but he only saves those who are worthy of it, those who deserve it, okay? Who legally obey the law. 
You want out? God asks, according to the legalist. Then impress me with your religion. Impress me with your life. Obey my commands. If you succeed, good enough, then, then I'll take you out. Those are the two most popular escape routes I've heard of, and most escape routes take that form, or often they're kind of a combination of the two. What Peter here is offering to us in the New Testament, as he quotes Joel from the Old Testament, who's offering the same thing, the whole Bible is offering a different way out. Not one that suppresses the reality of evil, like materialism does, nor crushes the soul with unrealistic expectations, like legalism does, but one that is honest about suffering, about the evils of this world, but yet glorifies God to the utmost. What is that escape route? We'll look at verse 21. After Joel talks about all the natural instability that reminds us of God's judgment of our sin on this earth, he closes with this. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the way out. Now, what is Joel talking about? Well, I find this really interesting that when you read about what happened on the cross, when Jesus was crucified, you remember what happened? Nature became unstable, didn't it? Matthew says the earth shook. There's an earthquake. Luke says the sun was covered and darkness was over the land. There was a solar eclipse. Nature was disrupted when Jesus died on the cross. Now, what's the point there? Why did God cause so much natural instability to happen at the cross? It's to emphasize to us, you know, in case words weren't enough. You see all these judgment signs? Look around. You see all the wrath that sinners like us rightfully deserve upon ourselves because of our sin? All of that is happening now on the cross. Why? Because all that wrath and judgment has been fully placed upon Jesus Christ when he gave his life for us on the cross. Why do you think that in these last days, sons and daughters, old and young men, male and female servants, anyone can have the Holy Spirit be poured out on them but yet not be crushed? Because the full wrath of God meant for them, meant for me, already crushed Jesus. He's our only escape route. He's the only way out. Look around. Stop suppressing the truth. Evil is a real thing. It's not just a category we made up. Injustice, immorality, those are all real categories. And you can weep with those who weep because they're real. And I know it's scary to admit that. It is. Why? Because we not only see a lot of real evil around us, but we also see a lot of real evil in us. What's the answer then? Where's my hope? What's my way out? Listen to the claim of Joel, to the claim of Peter. Listen to the message of the Old and the New Testament. Your only hope is not through personal accomplishments. It is not by impressing he who is the standard of good and evil, God. Your only hope is to receive what he's done for us on the cross.
this is the only way out. And this is the only way out that will cause God to get glory out of you. To win you over, your heart, your soul, not just your hands and your feet. This is the way out, the cross. To where we can be turned into worshipers of the God in whom we have offended. That yet took all of that offense on himself. Wherever you're coming from, whatever past is haunting you, no matter how unworthy you may feel yourself to be, listen. God is a God that claims the outcast for himself. God is a God that pursues his people into exile. God is a God that will climb down from heaven to earth and unto a cross in order to receive for himself the least of these with open arms. This is the only way out. I pray you would stop suppressing the reality of evil out there and in here and call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, those whom call upon your name shall be saved. Help us stop our suppression. For some of us, to no longer suppress could mean an existential earthquake, <laughs> could wreck our whole view of life. It may not even be plausible for us because of so many reasons. Whatever reason it is that is causing us to suppress the reality of evil out there and in us, Help us take it away. Help us to come and call upon your name and be saved. Let those who are hearing this be bestowed upon your grace, the Holy Spirit. That they would have a heart and have their souls long and desire for your glory and join in the mission of calling sinners to yourself. These are your people. Build them up. Grow them in your likeness. And may you be pleased to use imperfect efforts like mine and this sermon to do so. In Jesus' name we beg you. Amen.